Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained. I am Tiana. And I'm Kervin. And this week on the podcast, we are releasing a special episode entitled This Year Explained, because we're super creative here. <laughs> Staying on brand. <laughs> yeah, I've got to... We gotta be consistent. That's very with naming practices <laughs> here. Anyways. Yeah, what you're about to hear is just the main major events of twenty twenty two. All of the all of the guests from Insightful Inquiries. There's a brief about five minute snippet of each one of those. And then just throughout the year, all the main things that happen. I'm sure you can guess what some of those were. Do you think Russia and Ukraine made the list? We'll have to see. Anyways, I just wanted to thank you guys for sticking with us for the last yes. year. I know we say that often, but it's very important to us. And we're very grateful that you choose our humble little podcast to get your geopolitical news. Yes, we're very appreciative of it. Thank you so much for a wonderful 2022. Um, here's hoping to an even better 2023. Yeah, that. Can I be honest for a second? Shaker bottles suck. Your protein shakes always come out clumpy, and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15-plus blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. These portable blenders come in a ton of different colors. I happen to love the nostalgia of the Lisa Frank design, but there are designs for everyone from camo to Disney characters. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code thisweek12, that's this week one word and the number 12, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THISWEEK12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. How has your week been so far? It's been great. We got snowed in. Not Edward Snowden. Not Edward Snowden. We, we didn't get a Snowden. Oh my gosh, we're so corny. <laughs> No, if you were reading the reports of I-95's shutdown and Tim Kaine was... Stuck in traffic just south of where we are, and it was incredible. What did we get? A foot? It was, all, it was almost a foot. It was like 11 and a half inches. It was way more than they projected because they thought it would be about 6 to 10 inches, but they were erring on the side of caution and saying, yeah, we'll just be 6 inches, and then... Then we got 11 and a half inches. Then we got 11 and inches. we're recording this on Thursday, January 6th, one year from the insurrection. Oh, yeah, that's true. But we have more snow coming tonight. So another snow day. Anyways, we have a lot to get through this week. Okay, so now after the Olympics, what can we expect? Only Putin knows. And I want to say something before we go any further. Yep. Deanna and I are both Americans. What? Just kidding. I signed up and pledged to uphold the Constitution of the United States against all enemies. And that's the lens through which I see geopolitics. But we've also both traveled to Russia. What? Yes. <laughs> we met so many fantastic people. We really did. And it is one of the more enjoyable places we've been to. I'm not going to denigrate the people of Russia. Ksenia is listening. I miss you. <laughs> I'm also not going to play the bad guys versus good guys. I'm just reporting the news. Do I have an American bias? For sure. Will I protect the United States when they do the wrong thing? No. I'll be on this podcast reporting the bad decisions. I do not want my prediction to come true. But what I'm seeing right now on the border with Ukraine is far more advanced than anything Russia has done in decades to include the annexation of Crimea. If any officials in the US, UK, Europe, Russia, 
etc. are listening, please find common ground and save the people of Europe from the worst crisis since Hitler invaded Poland. Really well said. And I guess a nice segue into what Poland has done for the Ukraine. Yeah, it is a good segue. And <laughs> Poland is in no mood to see a Russian invasion of Ukraine because they know they'd be next. So a decision was made to supply the Ukrainian side with defensive munitions. Poland also stated they will provide Ukraine with any help to supply the country with humanitarian and military needs. Also, Poland will be involved in a trilateral alliance with Ukraine and the United Kingdom. The Polish prime minister said this week, quote, living close to a neighbor like Russia, we have the feeling of living at the foot of a volcano. Like in Tonga? Like in Tonga. Which would be a disaster. Yeah. And he's also called on Germany to not start the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, saying it posed grave security risks. He said standing up to Russia was not only important for Ukraine, but for all of Europe and NATO. Now, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, went on to accuse Russian President Vladimir Putin of trying to undermine the post-Cold War European order. On this episode of Insightful Inquiries, we have Gary Nessner, who retired from the FBI following a 30-year career as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. He was an FBI hostage negotiator for 23 years, retiring as the chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit Critical Incident Response Group, the first person to hold that position. He was heavily involved in numerous crisis incidents covering prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. Following his retirement from the FBI, he became a senior vice president with Control Risks, an international risk consultancy assisting clients in managing overseas kidnap incidents. He continues to consult independently and speaks at law enforcement conferences and corporate gatherings around the world. Gary's book, Stalling for Time, my Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator was written about his FBI negotiation career and was published by Penguin Random House in 2010. The book was used in part as the basis for the Emmy-nominated six-part miniseries on Waco that debuted on the Paramount Network in 2018. That miniseries can be purchased on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and various other streaming services. Gary has three grown children and resides in Virginia with his wife, Carol. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Can you expound on like what's the difference between if you're you're negotiating a terrorist hijacking as opposed to someone like David Koresh, who's basically got a following in his compound? Is, is there a difference that you you attack that? The, the difference is what you know, I always try to tell people, don't focus on who you think the person is. What we need to focus on is what they're trying to accomplish. You know, if it's, you know, a lot of the terrorism cases we work kidnappings of Americans in South America, they were done by terrorist groups like the FARC or the ELN, or in the Philippines, the Abu Sayyaf. But if they were just after money, which was most often the case, then there's really not much strategic difference in managing them than if it's just a criminal gang. I mean, it's a pretty quid pro quo bargaining. You know, they want money and they have a commodity, a human being, they threaten to kill them and they want money. And in that is a recipe for success because if they hold a hostage, it's not like they can go sell that hostage somewhere else if they don't like dealing with you. If you're right. a, a, you know, a company or a family trying to get your loved one out, you know, they can't say, well, you, you know, we're not enjoying negotiating with you, so we'll see if we can sell your loved one to somebody else. I mean, it's, it just doesn't work that way. So right. in other words, you could say, in essence, that both parties need each other. You know, you need the bad guys to release the victim and they need you to pay them the money. So as challenging as that can be, and it, and it certainly can be, but there is in that mix a recipe for success. You come to an accommodation and they don't get what they want and you pay more than you would prefer to pay. But ultimately, that's, that's how most are resolved. It gets complicated when the demands become political because, you know, then a family or a company can't address those and a government can't be seen as capitulating to terrorism. So that's where it gets quite complicated. But if we're dealing with this sort of a, a quid pro quo bargaining interaction, you know, then the prognosis for success, sometimes it takes a great deal of time, but the prognosis for success is generally favorable. Right. 
Hello, and welcome to this special edition of This Week Explained, because I'm sure everyone is aware of what is going on in Ukraine, right, Kerbin? <laughs> I hope so. We've been talking about it yeah. for, it seems, forever. We've been, uh, I'm sure people have looked at us and said, just shut up. It's not going to happen. There's going to be a diplomatic solution. Well, that's what yeah. everybody hopes for. And that must do. Yeah, you yeah. don't want a new war any more than anyone else. And I know the people of Ukraine have to be really worried right yeah. now. And we do have some contacts there and they are worried right now. They don't know what the next step is. No, I will say I do know what the next step is. Oh, OK. So here's, if, I'm sure everyone's wondering why there is a breaking news podcast. Yeah, we're all. We've told you, don't follow the media. Don't listen to the media. So as of today, Vladimir Putin has officially annexed Pons and, and Donetsk in Ukraine. They have said that those are breakaway provinces and they are now parts of Russia. And they have actually moved troops that were along the border of Russia and Ukraine into I've, those provinces. I do have a question. Are those two provinces on the eastern part of Ukraine, are they... Like, yes. Sorry. I am so sorry. Yes. I just want to know because I know people in eastern Ukraine consider themselves more Russian than western. Right. So that is that's always been what we discussed. The Mm -hmm. first step is going to be those pro-Russian portions of Ukraine. And just as we predicted in December, on December 24th. Don't say we. If you were there with me. I was um, there while you were making using your analytical skills. But I was just there for the ride. Like, So it was said, and I have put that put that audio back out into the ether just to show that we're not making this up. It was said directly after the Beijing Olympics and mm-hmm. will begin his invasion of Ukraine. It is now uh, about 24 hours after the Beijing Olympics. And at least and he waited. Yeah. At least he waited about 24 hours before he decided. The interesting thing that's been going on is seeing reaction, people in the U.S. and various media outlets talking about how even this is not a Russian invasion of Ukraine because those are actually Russian provinces and Russians have always been there to begin with. And if you're saying that, I don't know that I can trust you in anything that you say. This is an invasion of Ukraine. It is happening. Take your blindfold off and watch what's going on. What is the reasoning behind taking the nuclear power plant? That specific nuclear power plant is the largest of Ukraine's four nuclear power plants, which together, all together, those four plants provide about half the country's electricity. So gaining control of the power plant is a strategic win for Russian forces as they can now control access to electricity. So this is going to come into play as civilians in Ukraine continue to protest the Russian invasion. And without power and access to the outside world, morale among Ukrainians could wane. I'm not saying it will, but it could. And Russian forces could more easily take over other strategic locations like Kiev. How is that takeover of Kiev going? That's not good for the Russian forces. So now the Russian military has suffered between 2,000 to 4,000 killings, or they've had that many people killed in the first 11 days of the invasion. And those numbers are far higher than the military anticipated because they did expect a quick, decisive victory. Now, to put those numbers in perspective, the United States suffered just under 2,500 military casualties in the entire 20 years of the Afghan war. That is incredible. It's stunning. Holy moly. Compare those two conflicts. It's just why it's showing that. Really, Putin does not actually care about his citizens. It's just about that land grab kind of thing. Like, and we're not breaking any news with that comment. This month on Insightful Inquiries, we sit down and talk with former CIA officer Mike Baker. Mike spent nearly two decades with the agency before transitioning to the private intelligence sector, where he co-founded Diligence, an investigations company specializing in complex cross-border inquiries. Mike regularly appears on a variety of networks as a subject matter expert on intelligence matters and world events. He is also the host of the Science Channel's hit television show, Black Files Declassified, where he investigates top secret government programs steeped in cutting edge science. 
Season 2 of Black Files Declassified premieres on March 9th on the Science Channel and can also be streamed on Discovery+. Plus. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Let me start with what I have seen as far as the the OSINT, the open source intelligence on social media, who have done, in my opinion, and you can have a different opinion, and please speak to that, but in my opinion, have done an incredible job of just putting the information out there. In that, so we are about to be, if no one under, if no one knows this right now, we're about to be in a global conflict, and open source intelligence has been putting out all the movements of this is what we've seen that's going to go on, and here's our predictions for it. Do you see that as a benefit to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine in, in pointing out where Russian troops are or where uh, where false flags are being promoted? I think it's a benefit in a way. Right? I think it's inevitable in a way because of the way information flows and everyone's got a smartphone, and it's just it's much to monitor whether it's troop movements or sort of the flow of information out of, of the opposition, whatever it may be. I think the, the good part about that is people are continually reminded, hopefully, that they need to stop and question what they're reading or what they're hearing. They need to think about it. They need to think, what's the source of this, right? So they're not just sucked into some Russian disinformation hole and that, that they actually understand. And I think there's been some good general awareness developing over the past few years of, of this idea of deep fakes and of the bots and Russian disinformation, Chinese disinformation, whatever it may be. So I think that's very good. It helps to create a more informed public and that's never a bad thing. But yeah, I just, I don't know that anybody, because the only person that really knows Putin's plans and intentions right now is Putin. I don't know that anybody really has a full grip on just how bad this could get. If he's psychotic enough to believe that he can get away with pushing past Ukraine and somehow set his sights on the Baltic states or God forbid, Poland, then he's completely unhinged. It's not just a question of, has he gotten to a point in his mind where he doesn't care what the West thinks? If he gets to that point, he's psychotic, right? Because yeah. that's something that he's not going to win. And I think he's already strategically overreached here by, if he had just simply stuck to the eastern side of Ukraine, to the Donbass region, that with these two declared independent republics, yeah. and, just, and just shore that up, he would have gotten away with it because NATO would kind of shrug a little bit and act a little concerned. And eventually the sanctions would be loosened and nothing else would happen. And it'd be like what took place with Crimea or Georgia. Or, so I think by pushing into Kiev and then likely setting his sights on overthrowing the government, setting up a puppet regime. If it turns into a painful conflict, if the Ukraine military or the citizenry are able to maintain a resistance, I think one of Putin's real strategic errors here is imagining that the Russian public will put up with it for any period. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This month, Wayne Phelps joins the podcast. Mr. Phelps is a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who deployed five times, including two deployments to Afghanistan, two deployments to Iraq, and one deployment aboard a U.S. Navy ship. He was amongst the first conventional troops on the ground in Pakistan after 9-11. He also participated in the initial invasion into Iraq in 2008 and the troop surge into Afghanistan in 2010. He commanded units at every level, from platoon to squadron, serving as an instructor at the Marine Corps' premier aviation training squadron, and served as a staff officer in the Pentagon. In 2014, he was selected to become a drone pilot, and he attended the Air Force's remotely piloted aircraft undergraduate training, becoming the first Marine honor graduate. His last assignment was as the commanding officer of Marine Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Squadron 3 in Kanek, Hawaii. As the commanding officer, he deployed four teams to conduct counterterrorism operations against violent extremist organizations. He holds a master's degree in military studies and a bachelor's degree in mathematics. His personal military decorations include the Bronze Star, two meritorious service medals, three Navy and Marine Corps commendation medals, one with Combat B for Valor, 
a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, Combat Action Ribbon, Honorable Order of St. Barbara, and 2012 Marine Corps Aviation Association Command and Control Officer of the Year. He is also the author of the book on killing remotely, the psychology of killing with drones. He currently resides in Austin, Texas with his wife and two children. Starting in 2009 when ramping up their, their program out there. And I know early on the way I felt when I heard the guys, the sensor operators or the pilots who would complain about having issues or PTSD. And I would pretty much, what the military says, shut up in color. <laughs> tell them, Just shut up, guys. It's not that big of a deal. But as I've grown and gotten out, and reflected on all of that, I've changed my opinion on it and how mental health is very key in keeping not only these guys in uniform, but continuing the job without destroying their lives. Yeah. It's counterintuitive to think that somebody sitting in a box in the safety of the United States that's flying a, a combat mission on the other side of the planet should have any sort of mental issues with the work that they're doing. It's counterintuitive for you and I to think that, and, and we were in the service. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely hard for civilians to think like, well, why would you even be bothered by that? And I want to just uh, touch on a couple of points. First, there's been lots of research done on content moderators. And I talked, I talked about this in the book a little bit, but uh, I just heard another story yesterday on NPR about TikTok moderators and how they're still suffering from some of these things. So content moderators are these humans uh, that are employed by social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, all of those folks. They're employed to keep the worst content that people attempt to post off the internet. So they have algorithms that'll do the first screening and they'll send it over to a human. And a human's, okay, you're looking at things like murders, rapes, beheadings, pornography, racism, just the worst of humanity or that people are attempting to post on online. And you have a human after the algorithm sends it over to say yes or no, make the decision. The human has to do the screening of it and they get about 25 seconds to look at it and make a yes or no decision and then move on to the next one. And they have a quota each day. They've got to hit their quota and it's just crazy. Like most of these people that you hear about are not doing well. They're suffering from some sort of traumatic experiences from the things that they are observing, even though they're in no physical danger, they're not in harm's way. They're just seeing this deluge of just horrible stuff happening. And that's, I think that's one extreme because that's every 25 seconds, something else bad is happening. And that's how you spend your entire day. That's going to mess somebody up. What makes the PTSD diagnosis actually possible for RPA crews and intelligence analysts is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of Mental Health, otherwise known as the DSM. The DSM-5 is the latest edition that came out in 2013. All right. Welcome, Miranda Kapulsa, to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you. So before we get, because I, I, I want to take up a lot of the time talking about human trafficking and the counter human trafficking, because that, that is something that I appreciate and something that is close to my heart, because it is a big, I would say, human trafficking is a pandemic in the, on this globe. Mm. It happens everywhere. It's constant. It's continuous. But first, I'd like to start with what behavior analysis. What is that? What's a typical day for a behavior analyst? And what does behavior analysis look like? It depends on the client, to be honest. It can be, for instance, observing the behavior. Let's say when it's someone in a corporate situation that's maybe a disgruntled employee, then my day will be observing all the movements almost and the behavior really that person does. So that can be online, that can be email communication, that can be face-to-face, -face, that can be behaviors moving from A to B, digging into their past. So it, it, is, it is a lot of, it's like a big investigation really in the behavior of someone and then trying to tell them what the outcome will be and if that is positive or not. So will that disgruntled employee with a behavior he or she is expressing now come back to the, the premises, to the, 
to the office, let's say know where everyone lives, go to their homes and take them out? Or uh, will it be someone who is only screaming online? So that, and, and will they get over it? So that, so that is, for instance, in, in corporate, what I do on, for airlines is really observing people in their walk to, at the airport, to their flight. Is it normal behavior? Are they stressed because they missed their flight, because they are late or because somebody died and they want to be on time or they, they are getting married? Or is it something that is standing, does their a suitcase, for instance, match with, with them? Is it the big bloke with a pink suitcase and is he acting weird do we see for instance children or female behaving differently maybe insecure frightened very quiet so there are so many things are there people who you can see are standing someone observing a flight and all the people that go on board and why do they do that what do they have in their suitcase how do they respond in connection with security yeah all that's the, so there are many different days for executive protection. I, I teach them how to establish baselines, for instance, with their when they are out with their clients. What do they need to look for? What is different? Uh, let's welcome Daniel Jean Greco. As a baseball fan, I keep wanting to say Giancarlo because there's quite a few baseball players <laughs> with that name, Jean Greco. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Yep, and I think the, so the headline thing is a great distinction because that's where it all started for me years ago and with this onset of corporate media where everything is based off of advertisement and clicks. And so you've got these, what everyone would call clickbait headlines where the the headline is telling you how to think, but the actual, the actual body of the article has nothing to do with what the headline is said and so how the concept becomes how do you change that you can change the headline but then you've actually changed somebody's work then we get into copyright and free speech and and that kind of thing yeah it's uh and, and to add on to that as if that wasn't enough already you're you're in this landscape where media consumers and media producers are becoming one and the same you have influencers who on one day might be peddling a a product or a personal interest, and then the next day promoting an ideology. And, and there's not necessarily uh, disclosure around that. And so you're seeing this sort of intertwining of the financial interests with legitimate news or information interests. And, and it's really tough to tease out. And then you have all the kind of traditional issues with misinformation, disinformation, is it are your sources coming from mainstream media, alternative media, new satire? Are you reading sponsored content that reads like a news article? Is it straight up propaganda? And, and so it just it presents a really challenging landscape that an individual media consumer is really has to be attuned to this if they don't want to be susceptible to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're not trying, what we're not trying to do is inundate people with headlines and the word fake, true, opinion, entertainment, and that kind of stuff. Because I think that knowledge is power. I know that's a cliche kind of thing to say, but the more you read and, and the more differing opinions you look into that are outside of your bias actually improves your intellect. And it improves your, it improves the way that you interact with other people. Mm-hmm. It is what I believe. And so I'll throw it over to you on what you sure. think on that. Yeah. And, and there's, there's obviously evidence for that. There's, and there's also evidence that depending on the, the pathway of exposure, right? If I'm, if I'm chatting with someone who is of an op, an opposing political ideology and I'm trying to, you know, prove them wrong about something and I pull up what, what I think is a, a very credible piece of news to, to disprove what they're saying, there's also evidence that shows that that might end up reinforcing their position. And so really that it's that issue of like, how does anybody make headway with, with this, with these competing perceptions and understanding of what fake news is? Yeah. And I think one of the big problems that we talked about a few days ago was, do people actually want to have their buy, for lack of a better term that I can't think yeah. of right now, attacked? 
or have competing biases put yeah. before them. So that that's a question for the listeners, for the community, and definitely get on to the community and tell us what you think about this, because I go back and forth. As for me personally... This month, Luke Bensey joins the podcast. Mr. Bensey has worked in over 120 countries and has trained thousands of domestic and international students from police, military, and intelligence services on topics such as economic and industrial espionage, border security, intellectual property protection, counterfeiting, piracy, and recognizing and discouraging terrorist travel movement. As the Managing Director of Security Management International, Mr. Bensey has been a consultant to the U.S. Department of State, U.S. Department of Defense, Fortune 500 companies, as well as foreign governments. He specializes in conducting strategic and security management assessments, performing counterintelligence and due diligence investigations, and also providing specialized intelligence advisory services. He is the author of Among Enemies, Counter Espionage for the Business Traveler, and Global Security Consulting, How to Build a Thriving International Practice. Mr. Bensey is currently working on the follow-up to The Clandestine Consultant, a riveting saga of travel and espionage. Be sure to check out his books on Amazon or any of your local bookstores. We hope you enjoy this episode. So then sticking with the D.C. area, and I think there's this uh, there's this running joke in the D.C. area that if you meet anybody in this area and you ask them what they do, they'll say they're a consultant. You ask them what that means and they won't be able to answer it. So could you explain to the listeners what is a consultant? As far as I'm concerned, a consultant is a trusted advisor who helps solve problems. I try to keep it as simple as that. Every guy and gal who retires from the military, law enforcement, diplomatic service, intel community, whatever it is, they immediately go and they hang up a shingle, which is fine, which I completely encourage. If you look at the statistics, 95% of these consultants who either have their solo entrepreneurs or they have a little boutique firm with some of their partners, 95% of them will never even earn $1 million gross in one year. So what I see most of these people do is they open up an entity, they turn around and they contract back to their old government agency and probably make a lot more money than they did in their last GS 14, 15 job. But I think that there's that misnomer in the DC area, especially because everyone is a consultant. It's, are you a consultant or are you a contractor? There's a big difference between the two of those things. They always figure a contractor is someone who does a specific job. A consultant is someone who is providing the strategic advice to, to leadership or doing training or some kind of effort to, to enhance other people at another organization. So I differentiate the two, but nothing wrong with being a contractor, either having your own LC, writing off some of those heavy tax expenses. Yeah, I, yeah you're spot on with the DC area here with that. Yeah. And I, and I do think, I think what you say, I, I would very much agree with because there is that sort of dichotomy between a contractor and a consultant. And what you said, 95% would consider themselves a consultant when they're actually a contractor. And that's where I fall. I consider myself a contractor and not a consultant. And I see the consultant as a subject matter expert on any particular. Yeah. And actually, you know, I wouldn't say that you necessarily have to be a subject matter. You can be a contractor and certainly be a subject matter expert too, and be brought in to, to fill a specific role. But I think that again is, is the misnomer is it's, I don't want to say you're a master, jack of all trades and a master of nothing as a consultant. You may have a specialty organizational behavior strategy or whatever it may be, but you're doing more big picture stuff and you're probably working with a higher level of personal. Instead of taking orders from somebody who a contractor might be, you're acting as a peer to somebody in that organization, providing advice, acting as a sounding board, providing training, whatever that may be. Let's get to the Russia-Ukraine update. What has been the latest this week? All right. Tons of news to get into on the war front. This week, Russia struck the capital of Kiev for the first time in months. Now, this was a predictable move as the Russian military has made advancements over the last couple of weeks. So we talked last week about a move to push towards and that is ongoing. As well as that, there was an agreement to allow free movement of goods through the port of Odessa. And immediately after that agreement, Russia bombed. And what was their reasoning behind bombing the port? So Russian officials stated that they were attacking a strategic military site, which is fair game in a conflict. And they also said that the free flow of goods will remain active. It's not really a free flow of goods if there's a threat to bomb the area whenever they want to. 
Exactly. And we know this is Russia's MO in civilian locations and claiming they had been turned into military locations. And which do you believe? All right, obviously, my opinion is that Russia continues to attack civilian locations as a strategic psychological attack on all Ukrainians. Now, just to keep it fair and open and honest, I know of times when the U.S. military was in Iraq and Afghanistan and for sure had to shift attacks on sites that were at one point civilian sites. Mm -hmm. And those were sites that al-Qaeda and the Taliban were using to attack U.S. soldiers. Now, I was in the planning portion of some of those offensives, and I know we went to great measures to protect holy sites and civilian locations, even though we knew the insurgency was there. So I don't have any insider knowledge of Russia's military planning. This month, Mark Ledlow joins the podcast to talk about corporate and close protection security. Mark Ledlow is the owner and founder of Ledlow Security, a premier security company. He is a Marine veteran and former volunteer wildland firefighter. Mark has worked in private sector security for the past 13 years, consulting for high-level corporate individuals as well as various celebrities. He's also the host of the Fearless Mindset podcast and several other security conferences where he speaks about security, threats, and various risks to assets. He can be seen at the virtual Breaking Into Executive Protection Conference on August 2nd on LinkedIn. Mark can also be found on various social media platforms, providing insights on the risks inherent in the world today. We hope you enjoy this podcast. And that's that's true a lot in the corporate world. We do former veterans who try to help others with resumes. We'll try to tell veterans the same. We try to try to Google differences in what you did in the military and how those certain bur- buzzwords for corporate America that because they corporate America doesn't understand these military terminologies or terminologies for weapons training and stuff like that. But I, yeah, I would say weapon. Yeah, you don't need to have that on your resume. They don't care. Usually, you're going to get. St- Put it in the bottom of the pile. That's, but the reason why I say corporate America is because that's job security. If you go to maybe a bodyguard job in L.A., that might be more important. They want to see how many, people, how many rounds you can do downrange and hit the middle of the circle of the target. Maybe that's more important in the celebrity world. But if you want long-term growth, corporate security is going to where you're going to have your long-term positive experience. I tell you right now, from my own experience, working celebrities and stuff in L.A., those are called gigs. They last right. a few weeks and you're over. And the problem with that industry is you're always looking for the next gig. Always looking for the next gig. You're looking for paycheck, paycheck. But if you have a corporate security supportive type of role, you know what your hours are going to be. And if you're a full-time right. FTE with a, like LinkedIn or Microsoft, you know what your designated hours are going to be. You can you, you probably can get benefits and stuff like that. That's why I push for people that want to get in the industry. I would go the corporate route because you know what – you probably get full-time benefits within that corporation organization. And believe it or not, those organizations want veteran military leadership experience. So I would put your veteran military leadership experience on the top ranking of your resume as buzzwords. And then I'd probably put in all your soft skills. That's going to make you appealing to that client, that C-suite level person you're protecting. Can he also writing skills? Can you write a report? Do you understand what profit loss statement looks like? Wait right. a minute. That's not taught in my EP, five-day hard skill right. course, shooting, moving, getting off the X. Sorry, folks. Hate to piss you off, but that's what corporate America is looking for. They don't care about your Jason Ford experience in Arizona, New Mexico. They don't care. They don't care if you're turning with the Assad, Mossad in Israel. They don't care. It doesn't impress them. This is going to probably piss off a lot of people. But that's what I'm hearing from my counterparts in corporate America. They want to know, can you drive? Do you know how to prepare right. a car? Do you have first aid? Are you medically trained? Yeah, shooting is nice. Can you? But I'm saying if the corporation's culture is anti-gun, I'm not going to do you much good. But Oh, no, go ahead. On a side note, there are clients in California, Texas, that require you to be armed. And they want to know how well you shoot. I remember one time I interviewed for a job in L.A., and I had to have a perfect score in my shooting. And I'm like, okay. And that's the only way I could get the job. And that's one job out of hundreds that I've done that were like that. But most 
genuinely, we have to take, think of the culture of California. Think about the court, right. culture of corporate America, what's going on right now. That's what the people that write your checks, that's what they want. But is it good to have these corporate, these EP schools behind your, on your resume? Sure. But what they're looking at is soft skills. Can you write? Can you right. talk? You got buzz those words like physical security. So yeah, I hope that answered your question about the difference between yeah. guard and EP. What I'm thinking is so far, I feel like the people that Putin has sent out there to fight his war for him have voiced their displeasure. Definitely. They did not want to be there to begin with. And honestly, if you continue that way, all of y'all together, if you all band together, I'm not, yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yes, if it is honestly true. If you band together, you can turn back the tide of this. Yeah, he's you one can, dude. He's just, he's one guy. And obvious, and also his higher up people, they're calling for his resignation now. Yep. So that's a major tide being turned. But what I well. do want to say is. He's crazy? Yes, he's crazy. <laughs> we could be at a point of nuclear right now. Well, do you really think Putin will authorize a nuclear strike? Like I said before. Putin does not care about human life. He doesn't care about his own life. He only cares about his legacy. Which is doing so, really well, right? It's not. But this right now isn't his legacy. He wants to be in the history books as the man who returned the former Soviet Union to its previous glory. He cannot do that if he's defeated in Ukraine. So he's not going to stop at anything to get there. So it's my belief that Ukraine will need better anti-missile equipment from NATO, the U.S., whoever, as this war drags on. And that's going to be because they need to save the lives of its own civilian population. Here's what I find interesting. After these setbacks for the Russian military, Putin and Chinese President Xi are set to meet. Could China actually be pulled into this war? I'm going to say it's been my opinion from the start that China is going to have to support Russia in order for Putin to see success in Ukraine. But then that would set all kinds of other things. Exactly. This month, Graham Plaster joins the podcast. Graham is a Navy veteran and among the first graduating class of the Naval Academy after the attacks on September 11 in 2001. He co-authored the book In the Shadow of Greatness, detailing the Naval Academy class of 2002 and is recognized in the D.C. area for hosting business development meetups, emerging technology discussion panels, connecting startups, private equity, and systems integrators across the national security space. Graham is the host of the Graham Plaster Podcast, where he explores the origin stories, passions, and opportunities from innovators and entrepreneurs. You can find Graham on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where he promotes defense innovation in the Department of Defense. We hope you enjoy this episode. That course in that environment, because, you, because of what you have to do, and you're immersed in the language and you're doing something at a hundred miles an hour. So a lot of people fail and a lot of people want to just give up. And I think what you learn in the technology realm and emerging technologies and innovation is that failure is a good thing and you can actually improve upon things by failing. Yeah, it's a really important theme is failing forward, failing fast, failing uh, failing in order to succeed. At Defense Works, we like to say, uh, you know, fail fast and fail forward, but don't make it a habit. Don't fail every time. I know if you want to get hired at like Amazon, for instance, one of the leadership principles is that leaders are right often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, there's or something like that. And I think the idea is that, yeah, sure, you want to learn from failure, but you want to try to figure out how to become someone who win a lot. But I would say I just saw a video recently and I've been thinking about this in this theme. It was someone doing some some exercises and he was talking about the importance of training to failure, like doing enough push-ups until you can't do any more or sit-ups so you can't do any more or whatever, squats so you can't do any more. And it's at that moment of failure that you achieve the most physical growth in your muscles. And he did a demonstration and I, it really hit home for me. And I was wondering how that might apply for something like R&D. Certainly we can imagine getting ready for a space exploration or something and needing to test things until they no longer fail, 
right? You make them fail, make them fail, make them fail until they no longer fail. And yet there are other environments where we're trying to get it right the first time. We're trying to not fail at all as we're getting something to work, whether it's a part or an operation or something like that. I have been kind of thinking about that, like the idea of training to in order to fail quickly. And it the analogy breaks down as you think about business because you don't necessarily want to go out and uh, do a startup and try to get it to fail in order to grow. You just want to succeed right away. You want to get your first big sale right away. But there are some lessons to learn from that physical therapy model to train to failure quickly. And I think it does lend itself to the lean startup methodology, which is try something cheap that you can get around quickly and learn from and then scale it when you know, you've already de-risked it a bit. Let's talk about Belarus before we get into the other stories. You answered a question last week about how Belarus says it is defending itself against terrorist activities coming from Ukraine. Do you feel like that messaging will lead to a possible false flag event in Belarus in order to inject that military into the conflict? That's an excellent question. And so you're reading my mind in understanding how Russia works with the false flag events. I'm not reading your mind. I'm following behavioral pattern. There you go. And using your gut a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there always tends to be a warning first. Putin will come out and say, oh, this may happen. Mm -hmm. And then they carry out the false flag attack in accordance with the warning. And that's done to achieve whatever goal they had in mind. And uh, so in this case, it would be getting Belarus officially involved in the the invasion of Ukraine. Even though Belarus is claiming they don't want to fight for Russia. Okay. That makes sense. We'll keep track of the activities that are going on in regards to that. But since you mentioned achieving goals, Putin this week declared martial law in the regions that were recently annexed in eastern Ukraine. Can you explain martial law and what goal that achieves for Putin? Yeah, so first I'm going to say that we've officially moved past what Putin initially described back in February as the attempt intent for the special military operation in Ukraine. Now that those regions are annexed, the full plan can be carried out at this point. But didn't Russia make a push for Kiev early into the invasion? Yeah, they did. And so that turned out obviously to be a miscalculation if we can look back in hindsight. And Putin got a lot of grief for it. But like I said, that directive was misguided. And right now, what Russia is doing is more of what you know should have happened early on if they wanted to shorten this conflict and achieve that goal of installing a pro-Russian government in Ukraine. What are you talking about? So I'm talking about something the U.S. has done very effectively when going into conflict. Now, I understand I'm not talking about the morality of it. I'm just talking about the effectiveness. Okay. That is a shock and awe campaign. So Yeah, it, we do that a lot, don't yes. we? And what that is just firing missiles at tactical locations at these military sites and completely disrupting the opposing military's operations. And you really want to do this before you start deploying a military presence in that country. All right, got it then. Let's get to the definition of martial law before we get to what that means for those recently annexed regions. Okay, so martial law is just the temporary placement of a military authority as opposed to a civilian government. And it's usually invoked in a time of war, rebellion, or natural disaster. Yeah. Now, when martial law is in effect, the military commander of an area or an entire country has unlimited authority to make and enforce. So what this means is that Russia can now conscript those people that were recently annexed to military service to help Russia continue their push into Kiev. Do those individuals have a choice in this matter? So they did a few months ago when they could have fled the region to other locations. Honestly, they're going to be forced into military service or go to a Russian prison as a deserter. This month, we welcome Cole to the podcast. Cole is a veteran of the New Zealand military, where he served as an intelligence non-commissioned officer. Cole's deployed multiple times to the Middle East, working in various roles as an intelligence professional. After leaving the military, Cole began to work in the government sector as an intelligence professional. Outside of that work, he started the Instagram account, allcon.s2, which offers insights into the Indo-Pacific region. Cole also started the Allcon podcast as a way for veterans to be more open about their experience and improve mental health through conversation. If you're interested in events in the Indo-Pacific, Follow Cole's newsletter, The Gray Zone, where he sends a weekly update to the most important events in that region. We certainly hope you enjoy this episode. 
but I think you've hit on something very important and it was something that I had just, I had forgotten I wanted to talk about early on because we're about 22 minutes in now and I wanted to do it really early when you were talking about your background, which was the mental health aspect of all of this. And it's something that I've spoken with other people. I had Wayne Phelps, who was a, he's a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the Marines and he's dealt with drones and he wrote a whole book on drone strikes and killing from a distance. It's it's Mm. on killing remotely is the name of the book. And the mental health toll that takes, because you're not in the intelligence community, you're not really front lines, got a gun. And while you do have a weapon in your hand on most days when you're deployed or things like that, you're not engaged with the enemy face to face. But there's still a mental health aspect. First question is, how does the New Zealand military deal with that mental health? Yeah, so there's there's a bunch of different initiatives and there's on-base psychs, as we call them, social workers and things like that, community service people. And we've got all the resources there to support it. But it's all about bringing those kind of conversations to the forefront. A lot of people still bottle up those kind of those like mental illness and things like that and how they're feeling by nature of what the military is and the culture around that kind of stay hard and especially amongst the males. But that is changing. So... The, mil- the NZDF has all the, we've got the support networks. It's just a matter of taking advantage of them, which I think people should do a bit more of, regardless of where you think you are on that spectrum. Whether you're just going through a hard time or you're full-blown PTSD, you're going through some real stuff, you should always take advantage of the services available towards your mental health. I certainly have in the past, and it's been pretty good. And then outside of the Defence Force, once you leave, we've got Veteran Affairs, and then we've got some other not-for-profit organisations that aren't related to the Defence Force that also help with veteran mental health and things like that. Oh, that's that's above and beyond what the US does for yeah. their military. But there's that same mindset in the military. I think it doesn't matter what country you're in, what community you're in, there's always that aspect of, oh, if you're going to go get help for that, then you're maybe a lesser person or you're no longer fit for this job, Mm. which it took me a few years to realize that, listen, I know I wasn't on the front lines and I wasn't face-to-face with the enemy firing and killing people face-to-face, but what I was doing it remotely and I was affecting the lives of families that Mm. I had never met and never knew anything about, but I I did the research and this person was the enemy and this person was a terrorist and they had to be eliminated, but I never thought about the family aspect of it until yeah. I got out of that. So then I could see with you agreeing with that, you felt the, the same way. And we're affecting change on these terrorist organizations, but to what to what harm to the family? Because we're yeah. still talking about human beings here. Yeah, I yeah, because I for the record, I was never a frontline soldier, nor was I ever in a position as you described. And I, the reason why I agree is because I can certainly see where you're coming from. Even the parts that I did play were very much on the sidelines, I think, in that kind of scheme of things. Welcome the hair, the myth, the legend, Mr. <laughs> Andrew Bustamante. How are you doing? I'm good, Kerbin. I appreciate you having me, man. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. So you started up Everyday Spy and... What was that like, you know, where we were talking about that fear of oh, yeah. fear of failure, fear of, I, I don't know how this is going to succeed. What was that? What was going through your mind when you started that up? Yeah, I would love to shift the paradigm on the idea of fear of failure because it's something so many, again, it's one of those, it's one of those taglines that, or that's thrown around a lot, this idea of fear of failure. I would, I worry that it's said so often that people assume that it's true because what I have found is that there are real fears out there, right? Fear of death is real. Fear of capture is real, right? Fear of being discovered is real. That's real fear. When you've felt those fears, all of a sudden failure does not compare as a fear, right? Failure, if anything, is a guarantee. Failure is an opportunity because every failure you have means that you just learned something new. How boring must it be to, be to do everything right the first time, to successfully do everything you say you're going to do, and then just seek out the next challenge only to find that the next challenge wasn't very challenging either, right? That's, that, leads for a, that leads to a very boring life. So what I would actually argue is that instead of being afraid of failure, we really need to be seeking out failure. Find failure. Don't fear failure. Find failure. Because the more you're pushing yourself to find it and fail, you're learning rapidly 
you're gaining experience. And when it comes to comparing yourself to others, you're doing what other people are not doing. Most people out there are avoiding fear, right? They're avoiding failure. They're managing fear. They're trying to set themselves up for success. They're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to do what they're good at. And then they think somehow they're going to get better by just doing the thing they're good at over and over again, right? If you make a good chocolate cake, guess what happens if you keep making the same chocolate cake? It gets incrementally better, but you have no idea how to make a vanilla cake or a pineapple upside down cake or a red velvet cake. So you're not going to be very successful as a baker and nobody really starts to care about your chocolate cake. That's 1% better than the last chocolate cake you made. Be the one that goes out there and finds failure. So when I started our business, I was expecting failure. Like I'm looking every day for failure, right? I'm expecting to pick up the phone and have people say no. I'm expecting to make a price and have people say that's too expensive. I'm still expecting that every day. I actually just wrote a, I wrote a proposal the other day. I have a client who's in California and he runs, it's a second cybersecurity firm that he's built. The first one he sold. So he's in what's known as an ultra high net worth client, a very wealthy guy. And I wrote this proposal, this two-day training that he was asking for. And I'm sitting here talking to my wife. And I'm like, how much should we charge for this proposal? Because it's, you've got a price is like this magical thing that doesn't make any sense. When you're setting the price, if you think that the coffee you're buying is actually like somebody sat back and calculated the true value of the coffee to be $4.50 or whatever, you're fooling yourself. It's all friggin' it's witches and like, reading phones and tea leaves. That's all that goes into making a price. So I make this three, this two-day proposal. It's just on a sheet of paper. And I just go ahead and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to ask $45,000 for it. And then right before I hit send, I say, what if I just say $57,000 instead of $45,000? What if I just add $12,000 to the proposal? What's going to happen here? Maybe he'll say no. And if he says no, then what he's really going to say is that's outside of budget. Do you have another option? Real risk versus perceived risk. The perceived risk is that this client is just going to explode and say no. The real risk is that if he doesn't like the proposal, he might just come back and say, this is outside of budget. Do you have an alternate idea? So I hit send. And then 15 minutes later, I get a text message that says, yes, send me the invoice. We're ready to roll. What that told me is that I still failed. $57,000 wasn't the right amount to charge. I should have charged right. $5,000. I should have charged it to the place where I fail. So I actually discover where the failure point is. Without that knowledge, now I'm just stuck making less money than I could have. And that's the learning point. We learned that illness that we started showing symptoms of last week turned out to be COVID. Oh my God, no, you didn't. <laughs> We did it. You freaking two and a half years, and we made it. <laughs> two and a half years, <laughs> and we finally got the COVID, and not like everybody in the house got it. Oh, yeah, but look at me displaying <laughs> me me being really strong and doing this from my bed. You're welcome. You're welcome, listeners. Literally from the bed. They're like, no, please go to bed and let <laughs> finish this, please. Oh, they do not say that. I promise you. <laughs> but yeah, we've been held up in our bed all week, just putting out Instagram posts, trying to clue you in on what's going on on this burning planet of ours. <laughs> yeah. Burning in so, more ways than one. So, you know, if my voice sounds funny, that's why. If his voice sounds funny, also why. Then Putin calls for a complete bombardment of the most important infrastructures in Ukraine. And that trend could have gotten Russia into some trouble this week, right? Yeah. So if you're talking about what happened in Poland, yes, yeah. it could have been a and was trending as a global disaster. Yeah, it was trending World War Three, right? Yes. And luckily, a thorough investigation was done before any rash decisions were made from NATO, Ukraine or Russia. And what exactly did investigators find in Poland? Now, so that's honestly the main story for the week, right? So let's start with the background. This week, as I said, Russia bombarded various Ukrainian cities with ballistic missiles. During one of those events, an errant missile fell within the borders of Poland, killing two innocent farmers. I want to reiterate that the innocent people did die in this, and it's a tragedy no matter how you slice it. But what everyone wants to know is, where did the missile come from? So 
Early on, U.S. intelligence reporting claimed a Russian missile had breached the Polish border, and it seemed as if that missile had caused the death of those two Polish citizens. But after an extensive investigation by mainly by Poland, but also NATO involved in that, yeah. we learned that it was actually a Ukrainian defense missile trying to protect itself from the Russian bombardment or trying to protect Ukraine from the Russian bombardment that went awry. I've seen that Ukraine still denies their missile caused this tragedy. Will they be allowed to investigate with their own people? I'll first want to say that whether it was a Russian missile or a Ukrainian defense missile, it was an unfortunate accident. This was not a deliberate act. And that means it does not appear to trigger Article 5 from NATO. So I want to be at the I want that at the forefront of everyone's minds. It was an accident. It's one of the tragedies of war as accidents happen in war. Now, let's talk Ukraine and Zelensky, because I'm seeing support for Ukraine wane because of this. Yeah. And it is Ukraine and it is Zelensky's fault on this. Zelensky has doubled down on a statement that it was not a Ukrainian missile. And he said he had asked the Ukrainian Defense Force and they told him it was impossible that the miss that the missile that struck was from Ukraine. And where do you lean on this? So. I've actually seen some of the pictures from the blast site and some of the open source investigation that happened. And it, it does appear to be a Soviet-made missile, so a Russian-made missile, that Ukraine uses as their anti-air defense weapon on the western side of Ukraine. Let's discuss this week, Africa Elisa Gaborczyk joins the podcast. Elisa is a graduate of Harvard yeah, and survivor advocate so for those affected by week, human trafficking. She is the CEO and founder of Cyber Nightwatch LLC, which uh, provides President private Biden intelligence consulting, States training, research, presentations, and operational future. support. Uh, Elisa trained Interpol's human trafficking and migrant smuggling unit and their crimes against children during the Ukraine refugee crisis. She led a cyber operation that identified victims and human trafficking criminal networks. Elisa assisted in the generation of 765 intelligence reports identifying advertisements with indicators of human trafficking to law enforcement. Elisa is a certified human trafficking investigator and certified human rights consultant. and Elisa talk in depth about human trafficking and the role social media has been playing to identify victims of trafficking and return those individuals to their families. One of the most important things I wanted to talk about, which is, if you call it your dissertation for your master's or the paper that you wrote, which is fantastic, it's fascinating. I really learned a lot from it. And it was how human trafficking is not only an urban problem, it's not a big city problem, but it's also a rural problem. Would you like to discuss any of the things that, because you said you didn't notice it at first, but now looking back, what are some of the examples that you saw that maybe people or in a small town that they could notice as well. Yeah, definitely. So I went to a high school basically in the biggest city in Montana, Billings, Montana. And I didn't notice it, but there were a lot of massage parlors around. It was just very common. We walked past them. No big now, deal. There would be jokes the about Communist it. Party will everyone would laugh. But they're gonna I did not know exactly what these massage parlors were. I never even looked into it. The exact and now as I've studied, so I started getting really involved Africa in the task force the there and realized that we had a really more. big problem with illicit so massage parlors. Right now, and essentially, um, those are the plan is to have basically businesses. The they're covering their activities. Uh, which will be so they're covering behind a business profile. And... To that, be able that to conduct change. their activities, um, everything, yeah, everything looks normal that, on the outside, uh, right? But you don't really know what's going on in the inside. So I became very passionate about assisting with the, the ordinance that was passed later on. I did a lot of tours, a lot of research. I was really close with the team there, the task force. And uh, coming from living around that every single day and not realizing what was going on there, it really pushed me to speak up about it. And... Also, as a child, too, like I would walk downtown and I did a lot of like coffee outreach. So we would get coffee, give coffee to like homeless people on a really cold day. And I remember this one moment where a guy was basically selling a girl on the street next to us. Now I'm looking at that and I had no idea what I was looking at. But now that I look back, I'm like, wow, like we, we had a problem. So when you look at Montana, what is our line that we always, I guess, like our state, like a tagline? 
It's called Get Lost. So Get Lost in Montana. Montana is the perfect place to conduct those criminal activities. Number one, our police officers are understaffed, so they don't have a lot of resources. We don't have sales tax. And there's just a lot of land to cover. And the highway goes straight down. And so there's a lot of activity there. We have the a lot of a space where it could be unmonitored. So I wanted to highlight that because when I thought of trafficking, I thought, okay, Atlanta, Chicago, Los Angeles, right? But it was happening like two streets from me. It was happening right next to my high school. And it's something that really needed to be highlighted. There's another factor involved, like there's not a lot to do in Montana especially for youth. You could do outside recreational sports. You could do hiking, all of that. However, it's a place where there's a lot of vulnerabilities there, right? And I luckily didn't ever experience anything directly there, but I know that it's a growing problem. Same with the crime and billings. It's just growing and we need to have the resources to handle it. So I was really heavily involved in that and really just wanted to push that and highlight it because no one would ever think that Montana had a human trafficking problem. Let's discuss Africa and how the U.S. is trying to maintain influence in the region. Yeah, this is important. So this week, U.S. and African leaders met in a planned three-day summit in Washington, D.C. U.S. President Joe Biden said the United States is all in on Africa's future. That's a fascinating statement because it appears the U.S., is appealing to African leaders and saying that the United States will help improve the infrastructure as well as the economies of many African nations if they are given more access to their country's highly sought after minerals. That's what Africa, the, the African continent is rife with all kinds of much needed minerals. But as of right now, Chinese trade with Africa is about four times that of the United States. And they've become an important creditor by offering cheap loans and much cheaper loans than the Western countries are offering. But we're too busy ramping up our friggin' interest yeah. rates and blaming everybody else for it. Hey, it's not cheap for us either. No, um, well, <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely not cheap. It's horrifying is what it is. Now, I always like to put this in the perspective of maybe not data or anecdotal evidence, but what I've seen with my own eyes. And I've been to these countries in Africa. And what I've seen is that China pretty much exits a country wherever it goes, and it leaves it worse off than than it was before they got there. So once they've gotten all those minerals, they just leave. They don't build up the infrastructure. Now, the Chinese Communist Party will claim that they're going to improve infrastructure, but their actions during my time in Africa was the exact opposite of what they say. So is this summit between Africa and the U.S. a one-off thing, or will there be more? So as of right now, it looks as if the plan is to have U.S. delegates and the U.S. president, which will be Joe Biden, travel to Africa in 2023. Now we know that can all change. Everything can change. But that that trip is supposed to further bolster partnerships between all the African nations and the United States. Well, that's a wrap for 2022. We hope to see you in 2023. Thank you so much for listening. Have a happy and safe new year. As always, if you like this show, please try to tell at least one person about us. We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, head over to Apple or Spotify Podcasts and give us a five-star review because those can help us get noticed by thousands of podcast listeners globally. Also, if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, please follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics.